passage on which the teaching will be based this morning comes from Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21. I will say that it is very nice to be able to see faces this morning. Last week, not having church, only on speaking to that camera is very different than talking to your faces. So we're glad to have you back and appreciate your patience with us last week through all of that craziness. Um, But let's give our attention to the reading of God's word from Matthew 18 as Jesus tells or responds to a question from Peter with a very remarkable story. Verse 21 says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had until the payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will repay everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Simon Weisenthal, I've mentioned this book before, wrote a book uh, back in 1969, uh, uh, I think, called The Sunflower, uh, the, on the possibilities and limits of forgiveness. It's a fascinating book because he details uh, an almost surreal experience that he had towards the end of World War II when he was um, in a prison camp and serving there in a prison camp and comes face to face with a German SS officer who was mortally wounded and dying in a hospital. And in the fog of his death throes, the Nazi officer begins to detail to Weisenthal his crimes, the most horrific of which was the burning down of a building that was full of Jews months earlier and laughing with his fellow officers as they shot the people who tried to run out of the uh, escape the flames from the, from the building. But there's this dramatic moment in the confrontation where the officer, the Nazi, grabs Weisenthal by the collar and begs him to forgive him for what he's done. Well, in that moment, Weisenthal said that he just froze. And having no real idea what to do, he ended up doing nothing and saying nothing. So the book then turns the table on the reader and poses the question, Dear reader, What do you think I should have done? Well, the latter half of the book are these responses from from thinkers and philosophers and theologians literally from all over the world. I mean, it, it really is a fascinating read. But what interests me about reading those respondents 
was the connection and how often they made the connection between the question of forgiveness and the discussion about God. Why? Well, I think because in my experience, whenever, whenever you begin to talk about forgiveness, it begins to challenge you to think about real justice. It just gets your juices flowing about where people are and why they are the way that they are and, and why this offense is stuck in my crawl the way that it is. Can that be healed in this life or the next? So when you wrap yourself up in that vivid pain that people commit against people, you start looking for ultimate answers to that pain. Answers that we intuitively think only God can really give. Look, let me locate us in our study so far in Matthew. If you remember at the very beginning of our study last fall, I mentioned that the book of Matthew is divided up into five large sections punctuated with five big sermons in each of those sections, each with its own major point. Well, we've now come in Matthew 18 through 20 to the fourth of those five large sections. And this section here is, seems to be unpacking just what this kingdom life looks like. What will Jesus' followers live by? And so what he's done is he set this stage for his last, by his last sermon where he's talking about the fact that all of his followers are going to have to follow a cross. There's going to be suffering involved in following him. And so that massive reality begins to form this cornerstone of a kingdom ethic that arguably has never seen the likes of which in any human society before or since that time. In other words, with Jesus' dramatic teaching here, you began to see that it was in drastic contrast to anything anyone around them believed. Jesus was preaching, as many have said, an upside-down kingdom where the values that you get sort of naturally from the world as a human being are completely reversed and God's community is established with a completely different set of rules. In our own chapter, prior to the story we read, we find that the greatest in life are actually those that are little children. That the greatest temptation uh, to sin is to sin against God. That's the, really the only thing that we have to fear. That seeking the lost is the most valuable thing that we can do. And finally, in our passage, he says, forgiveness from my followers is going to be unlimited. No limit to that. Okay, <laughs> interesting. Weisenthal, actually at the end of his book on forgiveness, concludes that if there actually is a God, then he is woefully silent and disturbingly absent. But of course, Christians know that in order to, you can only believe that if you screen out Jesus' ministry from your thinking. So how is it that Christians throughout the ages have made heads or tails of the difficulty of forgiveness? The story we have, I think, answers that in three different ways. We need to see, first of all, the costliness of forgiveness, the reality of forgiveness, but then finally, try to do a little bit of application for how we live that out in the, pra the practice of forgive forgiveness. Okay, so let's start on this costliness question here. When was the last time you were faced with having to forgive someone? Maybe a family member, a coworker, a neighbor. There's a, a Croatian theologian teaching at Yale by the name of Miroslav Volf, who, said, who after living through the ethnic cleansing, cleansing in the Bosnian War back in the 90s, made the point that as Westerners, we oftentimes live a fairly safe suburban life. And what that does to us oftentimes is make the question of forgiveness a, a matter of course. That's just what good people believe. It's understood that forgiveness is a highly valued human virtue. However, 
if you plant yourself, I don't know, in the Middle East, uh, perhaps in a Croatian province in the 90s, or even maybe a Chinese sweatshop, you might find that the idea of forgiveness mysteriously, comes a whole, mysteriously becomes a whole lot more complicated, right? But I think this is exactly what prompts Peter's question in verse 21. Take a look at what he says. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Again, Jesus has just said in the passage immediately preceding the one that we read, that if your brother sins against you but comes to you and repents, then you have, quote, won back your brother. And so my guess is Peter's listening to that and thinking to himself, um, well, okay, <laughs> but what if he does it again? And what if he does it again after that? I mean, how many times do I have to keep accepting this per person back? And Jesus' response is kind of a Jewish way of saying, look, your grace towards your neighbor is infinite towards them. You never stop accepting them back when they repent. Now look, you're not paying attention if you don't look at that and realize that's unsettling. No limits on forgiveness. How is it possible for Jesus to make such a claim? I get the sense, actually, that Jesus knew that people were freaked out by what he had just said, which is why he begins to jump into this story to tell them exactly why that's the case. And the textual clue that you get from the story happens in verse 24. Take a look at it. It says, one was brought to this king who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, look, once you start to sort of delve into biblical weights and measures, it can be very confusing for us to figure out what those modern equivalents are. But doing a little work on this will unpack a lot of impact from this story. A talent, as it turns out, was a weight of measure in that culture that would total in our day something like 75 pounds. A talent was a heavy thing. Well, this guy owes 10,000 of those. So he owes 750,000 pounds of something, which is where it gets fun to kind of work out the math, right? I mean, if you assume that he's talking about sort of farming produce as currency, th then you would have had a man who honestly would have been the wealthiest farmer known in the entire known world at that time. But let's say, just for the sake of contrast, which is clear that Jesus is giving us here, that it's actually coinage. It's literal money that he owes as currency. So I put this together about a month and a half ago, and I found that gold was trading recently somewhere around $2,062 per ounce. So you translate that into pounds, it turns out that he was owing about $33,079 uh, in, uh, in gold. But again, he owes 750,000 pounds of that, which means you have a servant that would have owed this king somewhere just south of $25 trillion. You see the point. Regardless of the commodity we're talking about, Jesus is telling a story to say, there is someone who owed an inconceivable amount of money. History tells us, interesting, that, that the entirety of the whole Roman Empire at that time would have run on something around a million dollars. So much so that you probably have to imagine people when Jesus was telling the story, there was a man who owed 10,000 talents. Someone in the crowd thought to themselves, come on, Jesus, be realistic here. No one could amass that. Not even Caesar could amass that kind of debt. But here we are at the first great point that has to be grasped in a Christian understanding of forgiveness. And it's simply this. Forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness hurts. 
Jesus is suggesting that when you face a situation that requires you to forgive someone, you can count on that producing pain. And sometimes it'll be true life-melting pain. And so what Jesus is doing in our passage, like it or not, is trying then to take my difficulty, my pain in that experience, and he's translating it to the Father's pain at human sin. Do you see the contrast? Last spring, I hope you'll remember that when we were looking at the life of David, we considered very briefly Psalm 51, which is the psalm David wrote after his destructive life in, um, with Bathsheba, that whole affair. But David's reflecting on his completely messed up life. He had an affair. He got her pregnant. He killed the woman's husband afterwards. It's a complete mess. <laughs> but in Psalm 51.4, he utters this little nugget. He says, but against you, O God, and you only have I sinned. Really? <laughs> God only? Uh, I don't know. Seems like uh, you might have sinned against the woman. Might have sinned against the husband as well. And not only that, your entire kingdom. But see, that's not looking at sin the way in which the Bible does. Because in the Bible's estimation, all sin is personal to God. It's a personal offense. And so Jesus is saying that before you can reasonably grasp what I'm asking you to do in forgiveness, you have to get a glimpse of how your sin looks to me. Because your offense to me, your maker, is inconceivable to your finite mind. It has risen to heights that even your imagination cannot fathom. That is, what is a triviality to you and me is a slap in the face to the God of the universe. Now I realize that for many of us we find that to be, I don't know, let's say psychologically disturbing. The thought somehow that I slapped God in the face with my mistakes, my well-meaning mistakes. But here's the deal. It's essential to understanding Jesus' kingdom ethic. But it anticipates a question, does it? Like, why in the world would that be helpful for me to know? Doesn't that make my problems worse? Well, that brings me to the second point, And that is that though there is a reality of forgiveness. So let's go back to the story. You can see this lack of apprehension in the man's response to the king calling in his debts, can't you? Look at verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will repay? You will, <laughs> okay. This is even more fun, right? The average slave class person during that time, we know from historians, was about $80 a year. Okay, so let's imagine he implied his entire yearly salary to the debt, which of course is impossible as well. It would have taken the servant 3.1 billion years to pay off that debt. You get the point. He's in over his head a wee bit, right? But what Jesus is saying is, not only is forgiveness costly, but it's also hard to wrap your mind around. But again, it's all done in the attempt to get you to really understand the reaction of the king. Look at verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. <laughs> At the sight of the man's begging, he releases him from his debt, which is an astounding act of forgiveness. The heading in my Bible calls this story the, the parable of the ungrateful servant. It ought to be the parable of the jaw-droppingly gracious king. That's the dramatic part of the story. 
And remember, what the king has basically just said is, I am now willing to absorb an inconceivable debt from my own royal coffers in order to exercise pity on this person. Amazing. But it sets us up for what's going on in the rest of the story. And notice, first of all, that the man shows that there's something deeply wrong in the way he responds to this comparatively smaller debt from one of his servants. You you caught this, right? His servant owes him the equivalent of about three months' wages. That would have been the 100 denarii. Not a small sum by any stretch, but microscopic compared to what he was just forgiven. Okay, so when you think about what, what the king, when he hears about what happened, he drags the servant in, of course, and very ominously says to him in verse 20, 32, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? You see what's happening there. For some Bible teachers, I've actually looked at this and said, what is happening here is God in the place of the king, is taking back his forgiveness. That is, forgiveness from God is conditional to you on the basis of whether or not you forgive others. There's a quid pro quo with him. And only those who get to heaven with those who actually show forgiveness to others. And when it comes down to it, heaven is coming by forgiveness. Well, we have a problem with that line of thinking because the rest of the Bible contradicts it. Um, The the security of believers in Christ is a major theme in Scripture. It begins in places like Romans 11, 29, where it says, Paul says that the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. They're not the kind of gifts that God gives and then takes back on the basis of your behavior. We combine that idea with Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where it says that that salvation itself is a gift. It is the gift of God you begin to realize that there is no back and forth thing. That's not how this works. Salvation is all of grace, and that grace will not be apprehended on the basis of one's behavior. Okay, so, that be, so what is happening in our text then? Well, I think there's a second textual clue here. Because do you notice how desperate the servant is to get his money from his debtor? Why is it that there's a report in the story that Jesus tells of, of, of that, that servant choking his servant. That, sense, that shows desperation. In other words, this passage reads perfectly clearly. If you see the servant's desperation, not so much as stemming from his failure to apprehend how big his debt was, but rather from a disbelief in the king's willingness to forgive. Okay, that was the whole sermon in one sentence. Let me say it again. I think it's not so much, we're not so much saying that this man actually didn't know how big his debt was and therefore he was just flippant when he went out to his servant, even though that's a possibility. I think this desperation shows that what he was doing with his servant was trying to collect money so that he could pay a debt that had already been offered to be paid. Hence the desperation he shows that he, never, he can't wrap his mind around what the king has done. And because he can't, it inevitably shows a lack of forgiveness for others. Let me demonstrate this in two ways, sociologically and then personal, uh, personally. Because we're living at a time now when forgiveness and grace and mercy is, is at a low ebb, if you haven't noticed. A society that has no access to the, even the idea of redemption is not going to wrestle most of all with what we might call um, uh, sort of blatant sinning in various places. What it's going to do is it's going to get that much more legalistic 
I'm quoting here from Alan Jacobs, great Christian writer. He says, when a society rejects the Christian account of who we are, it doesn't become less moralistic, but far more so. Because it retains an inchoate sense of justice, but has no means of offering and receiving forgiveness. Listen, please listen to this sentence. The great moral crisis of our time is not, as many Christians believe, sexual licentiousness but rather it's vindictiveness. Social media serves as crack for moralists. There is no high like the high that you get from punishing malefactors. But like every addiction, this one suffers from the inexorable law of diminishing returns. The mania for punishment will therefore get worse before it gets better. And welcome to 2024's election season. It's funny now, isn't it? It won't be funny when they step on your toes though. But see, Jesus is giving us this amazing, this amazing nugget for our understanding of really the psychology of forgiveness. Imagine this morning that somebody comes up to you after the service is over and asks if they could borrow $20 from you for lunch for themselves. You oblige, but you're awoken tomorrow morning by finding out from a phone call that you have been picked to win millions of dollars from a contest that you forgot you even entered. Well, in the midst of your celebration, your friend calls and says that they just need a little more time to pay you back your $20, <laughs> right? And what do you say? It would be impossible for you to imagine need, demanding them for repayment. But if you did, would it not then suggest that you didn't really understand what the lottery had just afforded you? That's the question. Look what happened here. What Jesus is saying is the massive fortune that came to you in God's forgiveness demotes your pain. The, the, the lottery demotes the pain of my $20 loss. And so Jesus is saying my forgiveness will demote the pain that other people have committed against you. It'll put your pain on the periphery of your thinking. I, I, said, this, I said this last week, actually. I never got over the pain of being broken up with by a girlfriend in college until I met Ginger. <laughs> she was just that great, so much so that my pain was placed in an inferior position in my heart and ceased to exercise tyranny over me. All of my other allegiances were demoted. Which begs the question, does it not? What could possibly be that great to demote the pain that I feel? Let's put it in another way. How can Jesus ask his followers to do something as strident as unlimited forgiveness unless he offers the exact same to you. Repentance will always be met with acceptance because Jesus even bore his followers' lack of forgiveness on the cross. Even that offense can be forgiven when we repent. And we begin to do the work, and it is work, of trying to massage that idea of God's unlimited forgiveness to repentant sinners into our souls then our relationships continue to deteriorate until, honestly, we get too hardened to even care. Look, without owning the offense, there's nowhere to take the pain that's been inflicted on you. All you'll do is pass it on to someone else. Why? Because you're trying to exact payment for a, to compensate for an emptiness inside your soul. And Jesus says, from now on, my followers will be those for whom forgiveness is not an option because my salvation is that great. Is there a greatness in your soul? Is there, is there a wealth inside your soul? 
a literal commodity from which you can look and say, look, on balance, what you did to me was pitiful compared to this mountain I have of grace from him. Okay, so what does this look like in practice? I need to make just a couple quick mentions about how this plays out in practice. Mike Tyson was the one, at least I found where Mike Tyson once said this, that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. You can talk about how easy, great forgiveness is until somebody sins against you. It's difficult there, then it becomes real. So I just want to offer you a handful of thoughts to think about as we apply this. The first one is this. We do not believe that forgiveness is amnesia. Lots of people struggle with this. Like, well, I'm still dwelling on that other person's offense of me. I just can't seem to forgive and forget. Well, that's a misunderstanding of how the Bible talks about God remembering our sins no more. In in Scripture, what that means is God is saying, I will not visit the consequences of of your sin upon you anymore. That's what he means by not remembering. When we forgive, what we're saying is, is I'm going to work not to dwell on not to mull over, not to stew over. You know what I'm talking about? Our hurt. Christianity is not sort of promoting some sort of avoidance and denial as a way to healthy relationships. That's not it. So it's not amnesia. Secondly, though, forgiveness is not necessarily trusting a person right away. This happens to perpetual abusers very often. They commit an offense, and after a few days, they come back to think about it, and they're like, I'm totally fine now. Can I come back into your life with no restrictions? But this is unwise, and it's actually a faulty view of forgiveness as well. If you've embezzled from my company, for instance, I can, I can forgive you what you did, but I also can realize that you probably need time to figure out what it means to be a healthy employee again. Sure, I'm not going to do this as a way of exacting a pound of flesh from you, but love can mean setting very healthy boundaries as well. Third thought. Forgiveness also is not ignoring sinful patterns in someone. Uh, This is how addicts will oftentimes act. Addicts will plea for forgiveness so they won't have to go into rehab. Uh, But that's not Christian forgiveness. Love oftentimes has to be tough. And oftentimes there's hard decisions that have to accompany very many difficult relational struggles. In other words, it is not (laughs) unforgiving to refuse to allow someone to lie to themselves continually, meanwhile, go, all the while, hurting themselves and others around them. That's not unforgiving. Okay, so what is it? How do we sum it up? Well, I think we can say it very simply as this. Christian forgiveness begins with absorbing the debt. It comes from acting the way the king acted. In other words, I know if I'm forgiving If I'm actively working to do whatever I can to keep from making that person pay for what they did to me, and that is work, which means I'm looking for ways to refrain from all those ways in which we do kind of dig that little vindictive needle into people's sides. We determine that we're not going to sort of deliver them the harsh words that we might want in a certain circumstance. We're not going to sort of cut at them with the dirty looks from the other side of the room. It means that we're going to refuse to take the opportunity of some, you know, opportunistic gossip to sort of make them suffer through others' eyes, right? In other words, forgiveness is the commitment to say, I'm going to determine that the buck stops with me. Because otherwise, all you do is perpetuate the cycle of abuse. Pain in your life has to go somewhere. 
And you can either turn that pain in on yourself and become cold and hardened and cynical, which is its own form of death, or you can pass it along to somebody else. My guess is for many of you, you're living even in family histories where for generations pain has been passed down from grandparent to child to grandchild. And Jesus is coming along and saying, what I intend for my people to be are people that are so well-resourced with a wealth of grace that you have the resources within yourself to stop the spread, to be one of the places that cuts off the inevitable spread of it. Why? Because I absorbed that much of your debt. And it's, it's inexhaustible if you'll just take it. But it's your lack of belief that I actually do intend to forgive that may very well be the thing that's creating your shortness with others. It's got to begin in him. Lewis Smedes once said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that that prisoner was you. We're the prisoner. It explains stories like when G. Walker, a Jamaican-born woman who was living in Liverpool around 2005, declared that she actually forgave the racist murderers of her 18-year-old son, Anthony, the newspapers actually began to criticize her, saying that those murdering scum did not need forgiving. They didn't deserve forgiving. And so in the weeks to follow, she would have to go back to the newspapers and say, look, please understand, there's not just a cost in what they did to me. There is also a cost in not forgiving. She said, why live a life sentence? Hate killed my son. Why should I be a victim too? Forgiveness gives you the ability to be set free. That's where Jesus is leading us to say. He says, I know it's difficult, but I promise you, I'm not going to send you out on a task that I will not amply provide for you for. And that's all to be found in my grace. And yet here we are. Here we are as prodigals, are we not? We, we sit in the midst of our failures and we look at God and we think to ourselves, well, I guarantee he doesn't want to hear from me now. Remember the story of the prodigal son from Luke 15? He starts to rehearse this little story to himself. He's like, oh, I'll go back to my father. And I'll be like, oh, father, you know, I, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Just make me a slave in your house. And when he finally gets to his father, his father won't even let him finish his little speech. It's like, hush, hush. Put, put robes on this guy. Christian, that's every time you return to him, there's a party. And to know that he receives you with joy and not with bitterness is trying to create this mass, this, this heft inside of you from which you can draw again and again and again and again to forgiveness from others. That's the vision. That's the community that Jesus is trying to build. Would that we would be such a place. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we need wisdom to guide us through this because there's some difficult questions here. Some of us are trying to figure out what it means to love someone who has hurt them and is hurting them. Some of us are trying to figure out exactly how to let go of something that has existed since our childhood. Father, this is complicated. It is hard work to work our way through this, and so we need your help. And we ask your grace to move towards us in powerful ways by your Spirit that might free us, that we might be a people who are indeed free because we've seen exactly what you've done in Christ. Would you do that for us? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.